Welcome to the Board Game Dojo Podcast. My name is Eric. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. Whether it's your first time listening, you listen to every episode, or somewhere in between. We sincerely, sincerely, sincerely thank you for giving a little bit of your time to listen to our little podcast. Today marks the beginning of our 2024 coverage, and we hope you enjoyed the episodes that we had for you, the Hopes and Cleanse episodes, and our top 10 board games of all time, where we introduced to you Simacha. And thank you for all of the positive feedback that we got from those episodes. Hopefully, it means that Simachan will show up before another year and a half for another video or podcast episode. On our Hope episode, we talked about getting better at implementing feedback, and that means not only getting better at things that you said can be improved upon, but also emphasizing the things that you like about our podcast. And one of the most frequent things that we've heard from people either on YouTube or on our Discord server is that people like the variety in our shows. So we are going to try to do even more of that this year, bringing you some review episodes, some psychology episodes, some history episodes, and some more interviews. I'm not going to share with you everything that we have in store. We'll give little drips and drabs of more information to you as we go, but please know that during the holiday season, we did get a lot of that stuff lined up to hopefully give you an awesome 2024 year of listening to the Board Game Dojo. And that starts today with a review episode because, oh my goodness, did we play so many board games over the holiday season, and it's really for two main reasons. One is that, well, me and a couple of my friends all got the nice holiday gift from our bosses that was being part of layoffs. And it was weird because not only was it something that was completely unexpected, but all three of us are in different industries and we all got basically the same exact layoff talk using the same terminology. wonder if they all listened to the same business seminar of how to make layoffs during the holiday season. But that is neither here nor there because the other reason is it's just been so cold. So it's been really nice to get snug and cozy underneath a blanket and play some games. And one of the weekends that we did this was when Ben from travelgames.co.uk and sometimes a guest on this podcast and his wife hosted us at their house in the UK. So we had some good UK goodies, some good UK food and played some games that they enjoyed. And some of those games we are going to cover today. The first game we're going to go over today is Discworld Ankh Morpork, a game that Ben and his wife said is one of their rare 10 out of 10 games. We'll see if we agree with them on that. The second game is going to be Paint the Roses, an Alice in Wonderland-themed deduction game. And finally, we are going to talk about Last Penguin, a kind of under-the-radar game that was crowdfunded in Japan, got a little bit of buzz during Tokyo Game Market, and seems to be picking up steam on Amazon Japan. Now, I think I've given a long enough intro, so I'm not going to do any kind of housekeeping. Let's get right into the game reviews for the day, starting with Discworld Ankh Morpork, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm really sorry. Sorry, Discworld fans, if I am pronouncing that incorrectly, and that's one of the things to know, is that I'm going into this game knowing nothing about Discworld. Discworld is a very popular book series by author Terry Pratchett, who is one of those authors that I think I've been told to read more times than anybody else because I like Neil Gaiman, and heck, they wrote Good Omens together. But I went into this one with absolutely no knowledge of the characters or the settings, so please know that the review that I'm going to give is from that perception, but I'll tell you why that's either important or not important after I explain the game, which is going to be a little bit difficult because it's definitely one of those games where it's super easy to explain if you have a board in front of you, but when when you don't have the board in front of you and you can see everything, it's a little bit difficult, but I'm going to do my best. 
So the first thing you are going to notice is a board that is laid out in front of you and it is divided into different sections. Now, based on these different sections, if you are in control of it, you can have different powers and different benefits from it. It might be something like gaining money. It might be something like moving your troops, which are called minions in this game, or it might be something like adding trouble to different spots on the board. And I'll explain all of that later, I, I promise. Now, how to get control of each of these areas is that you have to build a house and whoever has the house there is in control of it, kind of like Monopoly in a way. And how you get to build a house is that you have to have area majority in that area and there has to be no trouble markers there. So let's get into what both of those things mean. And let's start with the area majority bit because that's the easy one, I think. You just have to have more minions there than anybody else. Okay, simple enough. Now, trouble markers are added to an area when one person's troops or minions go into an area in which there is another person's minion there. It's kind of like a this town ain't big enough for the both of us kind of scenario. And this can be kind of dealt with in two ways. Either one, somebody plays a card in which they assassinate or kill the other one, in which case the other person's troops goes back into their supply and the trouble marker is removed. Or somebody just goes, okay, yeah, 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 you're right, you're right, you're right. This town isn't big enough for the both of us. I'm going to move out of here. And now you only have one person there instead of the two of you. So that's the way in which you can get rid of trouble markers. And again, if you have no trouble markers there and you have area majority, then if you have a card that allows it, then you can build a house there. And that brings us to another very, very important point of this game is that everything is dictated by cards. You can only kill somebody if you have a card that allows you to kill somebody. You can only buy a house if you have a card that allows you to buy a house. But as much as these cards can be positive and beneficial for you, they can be just as harmful for somebody else. There are cards in which allow you to steal cards from another player's hands. There are cards that allow you to burn somebody's house down. There's also interesting cards in which it goes into somebody else's hand and it gets stuck there until they have a card that can allow them to discard that. And yes, that also means that you can only discard cards from your hand, even cards you don't want, if you have a card that allows you to discard cards. Now, there are also ones that do some crazy things to the board, and these are the wizard cards. And wizard cards are affected when somebody plays a card that summons a wizard, and this can cause mayhem on the board, like summoning demons or trolls, in which you'll roll a die, and wherever number that it lands on, you will add trouble markers to that spot. As well, it can also cause fires to start in which you'll roll a die in, in that area. That's where the fire starts. And if everybody's house is there, then a fire springs up and then you roll a die to see, oh no, where is it spreading to? And so multiple people can lose their houses that they saved up money for over multiple turns and waited for just the car to be able to get it. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, okay, that's great. You can get control. You can get houses. You, there's trouble markers and money. But why do I care about any of that? Well, it's because in order to win this game, you actually will need to look at your character card. At the beginning of the game, each player is going to be dealt a different character card randomly, and each of these character cards will have a different win condition. Whoever reaches their win condition first wins the game. There are a couple people who want to have area control of four different spots. There might be another person that just wants the deck to run out. If the deck runs out and they have to reshuffle it, then they win the game. There's another person that wants trouble markers in eight different spots, and yet another one who's playing a greedy character who wants 50 
value of a combination of both the coins that they have in their supply and houses that they own on the board. So over the game, you're going to be trying to reach your win condition while also not allowing other people to figure out just who you are. And you're going to be trying to be able to figure out who other people are so that you can block them. For example, if you see somebody has area control of three spots, you probably are going to try to prevent them from getting it in the fourth spot because you can probably suss out that that's probably their win condition. Like I said, whoever gets their win condition first wins. So I have good news and bad news, bad news and good news. Which one do you want first? Okay, um, well, let's go with the bad news then. The bad news is it's a good game. The good news is it's not an essential game. The bad news, again, is that it is very out of print and is probably going to cost you at least $150 if you want it. But the good news is, is that you can get a re-implemented version called Nanti Nanking, which is a different theme entirely, but it does have very similar mechanics and things that are happening. So let's go over why I kind of have that feeling. And let's start with the fact that I couldn't help but think about our Zodiac Rush review that was on YouTube. And I'll leave a link to that below. And on the surface, these two things don't really have anything to do with each other, but hear me out a bit. I think what these two games really have in common is that the property does a lot of heavy lifting, of course, but also in the fact that it, on the surface, shouldn't be very fun. It shouldn't be critically successful in any way because it does so many things that should be outdated in board games. And I get that Discworld actually came out in 2011, so maybe that's just true. But there are so many things that should just be irritating to the modern board gamer. For example, Ben's wife had one game in which she basically couldn't do anything. Ben burned her house down in turn two, and then the whole rest of the game she just had crappy cards in her hand that she couldn't get rid of, and so she just spent most of the game just trying to get a good card, and then wasn't really able to do anything. There is another game in which she could have very easily won if she had changed to the person in which if you run out of the deck, you win. Because in a four-player game, unless you get a really improbable win from somewhere, that deck is most likely going to run out. She said, well, this is your first game, so I didn't want to win like that. That feels too easy. And that, again, is kind of like, really? There's a really easy win? But actually, the thing that made me think about this the most is the fact that I won both times. Now, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know that I am not that good at board games. So me winning two out of two times that we played is a big rarity. But the weird thing is, is that I didn't deserve either of those wins. They were just happenings that happened and I won because of them. Not because of me, but more in despite of my play. I was, in both games, the person that wanted trouble spots on the board. If there were eight trouble markers on the board, then I won. And in both games, that happened, but not because of me. In one time, it was because of wizard cards, and somebody had rolled over and over again different spots in which they added trouble markers to the board. I think they added something like five trouble markers in one spot, meaning that I went from having three of the eight that I needed to win to suddenly winning and it was the person that went right before me. So not only was I about to win, there is nothing anybody could do about it. 
And it happened in the next game, too, in which something very similar happened on a wizard card, in which we added demons, I believe it was, in that game, and that added four tokens to the map. And then another person was the person who wanted to have area control, so they needed to move to another region so that they could take control of that region, and they added another trouble marker. And then the next person was this other lord who wanted to do the same thing, so then they added a trouble token. So again, just from that turn, it went from having two of the eight trouble tokens to having eight out of eight trouble tokens. It was one of those things where when you have a game in which you're trying to say, okay, you're going to suss out the people and who they are and what they want so you can block them. I was doing such a bad job of adding trouble markers to the board that nobody could suss out that I was that person and that's what I wanted to do because I really hadn't done a very good job of it and then I won. Now, all of those things are things that should turn people off from this game. It should be something like, well, if this game is telling me that I should suss out a person, if they're doing such a bad job, they shouldn't win. And that's true. There shouldn't really be a game in which you spend most of the game going, there is nothing good that I can do to help advance my win condition. So I guess I'm just going to play this card and hope I do better next time. Like, that shouldn't be part of a game, right? And yet, as I record this podcast today, this game is sitting at 573 overall on Board Game Geek, which I know is not the end-all be-all, but it's so weird because Board Game Geek is supposed to be this like guide for the modern board game hobbyist, right? Why is this game that has so many things that should be like screaming, do not play this game, why is it considered so good? And that brings me back to what I was saying earlier about Zodiac Rush. Zodiac Rush had a lot of the same problems. Both games notably have take that cards that can really knock somebody out and some cards that basically knock them out of the game because they're going to be basically unable to recover from the damage. You can pile on the benefits for yourself, but you can also pile on the damage to somebody else. Both games have a luck factor of what cards do you draw? Do you draw cards that are actually going to help you advance your win condition or not? Somebody that just has better luck of the draw is going to win the game versus somebody who might even be better at the game but doesn't have a luck of the draw. That's going to be a problem in both of these games, right? And yet, both of these games are absolutely loved. And we enjoyed it. In fact, Discworld was Sumachan's favorite game of the weekend. Why is that? Because it's just plain fun. The game is super fun. First of all, I don't really have to know Discworld to appreciate the just off-the-wall art that are on some of these cards, like the duck man who just wears a duck as a hat. I don't know why that is. I didn't read the books, but I can laugh at that because it's pretty funny. I can take some of the blows that people deal to me because I know that I dealt them blows on a previous turn or I know that I'm about to get revenge on them in the next couple of turns. All of these things just put you into a world that even if you don't understand the source material, it allows you to have fun with that said material. And that is something that I hope I don't forget as I rack up the number of reviews that I have and the number of games that I put on my table and try to critically review, okay, what games are worth it for you to buy or not. Our Import or Not series is our main one on YouTube, and it's like, okay, is it worth $40 to import or not when you could buy something similar for $10? I hope that that's one thing that I don't really forget about board games is that board games are supposed to be fun. They might have mechanisms that are outdated. They might have mechanisms that don't make sense or that feel unfair or make you irritated and never want to play that game again well okay 
Maybe just one more time because I want revenge. It's these kind of games that bring me back to kind of the first games that I played and bring back the memories of when I really first found out about what modern board gaming was and how fun it could be. I said that in the Zodiac Rush review that I see why it's so popular because it uses mechanisms that are from familiar mass market games for people and brings them to a modern board game hobby and says, look what you can do with some of those mechanisms. You're going to recognize some of them. We're going to add some new ones and you can kind of play with each other in this source material land that you know and love. That is what Discworld does. It was weird because Ben introduced this game as a mix of Monopoly and Clue. And let me tell you what, Ben, maybe you need to hire a marketer for travelgames.co.uk because that was one of the worst marketing I've ever heard for a game. If anything is like Monopoly, I probably don't want to play it. But at the same time, he's kind of right. And I hope he's not listening to this so that he knows that I said that. But honestly, it is true. Like, it is like Clue, where you're trying to suss out who everybody is. It is kind of like Monopoly, in which you're kind of doing area control, and there's cards that are going to come out that are either going to benefit you or really harm you. It's very similar. And I think people who grew up playing one of those games is kind of going to find a nice little place here in Discworld, especially, especially if they are familiar with the source material. And so that's why I opened up by saying, bad news, it's a good game, because it is a good game. But the good news is, is that it's not essential because of what I just said. There are a lot of problems with the game. So I don't think you need to go out and spend $250 to acquire the collector's edition of this game. But saying that, if you want to play a light game with your friends, I think if you get a chance to try it out once, and it is a Martin Wallace design, so it is from a designer with some pedigree that I know a lot of people try to play all their games of, then I would give this one a try. And that's Discworld Ankh Morpork. And this was designed by Martin Wallace, art by Peter Dennis, Paul Kidby, Ian Mitchell, and Bernard Pearson. And the copy we played is published by Mayfair Games, RIP. The next game we're talking about is a deduction game based on my least favorite theme in pretty much anything, which is Alice in Wonderland. I mean, I guess it's Katanai, which means it can't be helped because it's in the public domain. But still, I really don't like Alice in Wonderland. But that's okay. Let's actually get to what you do in this game. So this game is a cooperative deduction game in which you are playing as the gardener planting roses all over the garden for the Queen of Hearts, who is chasing you for some reason. I guess it's the kind of off with the head thing. But you are going to be doing this by one at a time on your turn, placing one of four tiles somewhere on the open spots in the garden. Now, where you put these tiles are very important because based on what tiles that is touching, you are going to be giving that as a clue as to your condition. Now, what is this condition I'm talking about? Well, each person has a condition on a secret card in front of them that based on the difficulty will have something different for everybody else at the table to guess. Each tile has two things. A suit, which is like spade or heart or club or diamond, and a color of rose on it, like red, orange, yellow, pink, and purple. I think I got all of them, but I'm not sure. And based on the difficulty of the card in front of people, then there are a different number of possible combinations there can be. The easy card, for example, is only color to color, so they might be something like pink to pink or pink to purple. The medium can be either suit to suit or color to color. 
The hard can be suit to suit, color to color, or suit to color, or color to suit. So it's going to be harder than for everybody else to guess the hard difficulty than the easy difficulty. But the trade-off is that you are going to be getting less movement around the board. Every single turn, the queen is going to move. So you need to start guessing people's combinations very early so that you can stay in front of the queen and stay at a safe distance. Because if you guess it right, you get to move forward however many spots is on that person's card. So for example, the easy card might be only one or two steps forward, but hey, we at least guessed pink to purple, so we get to move forward one or two spots. But the queen, depending on how far along on the board you are, might get to move forward one space if you guess it correctly, but two spaces if you guessed it incorrectly. So you need to be sure about your guess. But even if you pass and say, mm, I don't really know what anybody's card is going to be, then she still moves. So let's talk about those clues of how to get people to guess what you are. Let's go back to the beginning where I said that the first thing on your turn you're going to do is choose one of four tiles and put it somewhere on the board. Once they put the tile on the board, depending on the tile that it is touching, everybody will put their color cubes on the tile that was just placed to denote how many times their condition on their card was met. So for example, let's say that I am trying to get people to guess purple to red as my combination. And I see that there is a place on the board that has an open spot right next to two red tiles. So I grab a purple tile from the garden, I put it there, and then I put two cubes on it for my card to say that, hey, my condition was met two times by this card that has a purple to red. But it is not only me that is going to be putting the cubes on, everybody puts their cubes on. So maybe somebody else had their condition met because that purple I just put down is also a spade and I put it next to a heart and hey, they have a spade to heart. So they are giving us hints about that. So there's actually a lot of things to do on any one turn. You're not only looking at the person whose turn it was, but seeing who else either did or didn't put down cubes, because it's just as valuable of information sometimes to see who didn't put down cubes and hence their condition wasn't met at all, as to see whose condition was met and how many times. If you're able to plant all the roses in the garden without the queen catching up to you, then you win and then you can look in the book to see how many points you got. However, if the queen catches up to you, then you lose. Off with your head. So let's go into our review of this game. And I can definitely appreciate that this is going to be a very acquired taste game that I think for most of you listening to this, you probably already know if this sounds like a game you're going to enjoy or not. I am one of those people that this game is definitely for because even as a kid, I always enjoyed logic puzzles and now more than ever, I really enjoy just doing them. I enjoy kind of flexing my brain a little bit and kind of working out these deduction puzzles. If it is this, then it can't be this. If it can't be that, then that means it must be this. That kind of deduction is really, really enjoyable to me. But I also can appreciate the fact that there are a lot of people that this is absolutely not going to be for. But I can also appreciate the fact that this is a game that is very much a time and place game. Not to make fun of Ben, because I'm definitely not doing that. 
I usually do, but I'm not this time. But I think that it's going to be a very common thing of we were going to actually play it a couple of nights. And then he was like, you know, I just don't have the mental energy to do this. And I really didn't understand why until we started playing it. And there is always so much going on that I completely understand what is going on there. You have to be absolutely 100% all there laser focused on every single thing. Every single aspect, every single clue, every single tile, whether it's that person's turn or not, who put cubes on that tile to denote that their condition was met and who didn't. Because time is of the essence and every single turn that queen is moving, you need to make sure that you are not missing anything because if you do, that is one turn that you might have missed. That was one turn later that you got somebody's condition when you could have gotten their condition last turn if you had just remembered to mark off that it couldn't possibly have been red or purple and now red and orange is the only thing that could have been left and now they had to spend a turn giving you that hint that you should have gotten already but it is not only in the conditions and the tiles that were placed but it's also in the tiles that were not chosen that is also an important clue for everybody even if that tile that they selected was a zero cube. It didn't meet the person's condition at all. But wait, hold on a second. We have it narrowed down that that person's card can either be red to purple or red to yellow. And they chose the pink one, which didn't have anything to do with the condition, but the other tiles there were purple. Why didn't they choose purple when they could have given us the condition? Like if they were red and purple, they could have chosen the purple. Oh, I get it. They didn't choose the purple tile. And that's our clue that's saying purple has nothing to do with my condition. I get it now. It must be the other one. And it's these little subtle hints that not only the person who is actually putting the tiles down, but the people guessing, they all have to be on the same page. They all have to have the mental energy and the focus at all times to be able to play this game to its fullest and win. This, to us, was really, really exciting. In fact, Sumachan and I enjoyed it so much that when we got back from our vacation, we went and played it on BGA because it does have a good implementation on that. So you can go and try it and see it for yourself. But this was really our kind of game. We both really, really enjoyed this. And especially coming from a background for me where I grew up doing logic puzzles for fun and still have an app on my phone of how to do it, then I really like this kind of game. But saying that, I would not blame you at all if you hear us talk about it. And even though I say, oh my goodness, we really like this game. We like using our brains so much. You go, oh, this does not sound like a game that I would really enjoy. It's definitely that question of not only is it a game or an activity, because I can kind of see them being both here, but also is this even fun? Like we talked about in Discworld, where it was kind of like, I don't know how good the mechanics are, but at least it's really, really fun. You have Paint the Roses where it's like the mechanics here are really, really solid. They thought about everything, but I don't know if I'm feeling stressed or fun when I'm playing this. Maybe a little bit of both. Kind of reminds me of Calico in that sense where you're playing it and you're like, oh my goodness, am I having a good time? I don't know, but I do want to play it again. And if you're somebody who likes that kind of game, then Paint the Roses is going to be right up your alley. If you're somebody who's looking for a game to maybe bring to the family, family's house who maybe like Sudoku or other puzzles like that, I think Paint the Roses would work. But if you're somebody that this game sounds like nothing that you would want to play, then you're probably right on that thing because I don't think it's going to convince you otherwise. 
But for us, it's a recommend. I think it's worth trying out once if you are into that sort of thing. And that is Paint the Roses, designed by Ben Goldman. The art is by Jackie Davis and Naomi Stanton Gulak, and published by North Star Game Studios. And finally, let's talk about Last Penguin, a game that was crowdfunded successfully in Japan, then made its way to Tokyo Game Market, and now is on Amazon Japan, and is picking up some steam in some board game circles. This is definitely one of those zanier type of games, so hear me out because the rules are actually pretty simple. It's basically Finger Twister. So all that is in this game is a deck of cards. In fact, it comes in a little tuck box. And on these cards are going to be either positive points, negative points, or a special effect. On your turn, you're going to take the top card, look at it, and put it somewhere on the table and put your finger on it. Now, this is the important part because anybody else can also add their finger to the card if they want to. Now, why would you? Well, you're going to be keeping your fingers on a bunch of different cards as turn after turn goes. And if you ever take your finger off of that card, then you lose that card. And whoever is on a card in which they're the only finger remaining, well, that is their card. There are a couple of little rules here and there, like you have to be able to actually flip over the top card on the deck and take a look at it so you can't be having your fingers all over the table and then you can't get to the center deck. Nope, that's not allowed. But otherwise, pretty much you're going to be playing, like I said, finger twister. And there's going to be little ways in which you can strategize to kind of game the game in a way. So for example, when you draw the card, you can actually place that card anyway. So you would think that, well, the positive points, especially that plus seven card, like I really want that card. So I'm going to place it closer to me so that it's harder for other people to reach. But at the same time, if I put it so close to me that I make it obvious, then everybody else is going to give up on the other cards and go to that card because they're going to know that that's a really good card. So maybe I bluff them and I put the plus seven card near one of my opponents instead so that they think it's actually a negative card and they don't go for it and I can just win it easily. It's things like that. There's also those special effect cards that I said earlier in which you could push somebody off of the card. Like you could say, okay, you are no longer on this card and then you win that card or you can add your finger to a card or my personal favorite, which is the top hat card, which is actually only worth one point unless you use and sacrifice one of your fingers to keep it on your head the rest of the game, in which case it's actually worth five points instead. So I hope that by these kind of rules instructions, you're kind of getting the atmosphere that this game creates. But before I go into my subjective review of it, I want to tell you that I received a copy of this game from the publisher themselves as a review copy. And actually, it's in those emails with the publisher that I actually kind of want to get into the review from, because this is one of the games that is going to be in the Tokyo Game Market boxes that we talked about on a previous episode, and Ben and I are going to come and talk about it a little bit next week. And they asked me about what I thought of the name. And I really didn't understand the name of Last Penguin. It involves no penguins anywhere in the box. We looked. And even the cover art is of a dolphin, which I don't think has anything to do with penguins. So why is it called Last Penguin? But they asked me, hey, Eric, 
Do English speakers use the phrase first penguin when they talk about risks? Is that a popular phrase in English? And I went, I have never heard that before in my life. What is this person talking about? But luckily, this was a question that I received a lot as an English teacher because it would be in their textbook or something as a popular phrase. So I was like, mm, okay, let me like Google image search. Sumachan and I Google image searched this and kind of tried to find it. And apparently, it is actually a business thing from a book in which you are supposed to learn that the first penguin that takes the plunge is kind of like the business that takes a risk into an industry because the first penguin is going to be the one who jumps into the water and they might get fish, but they might also be eaten by a predator. You just have to take the plunge. And so that is what's going on here. Lost Penguin actually doesn't have anything to do with penguins and more has to do with how much you're willing to take risks. So putting that aside, that was gonna be my main thing. I was like, this game is called Last Penguin, but it doesn't involve any penguins. But you know what? That's actually a great way to think about this game because the best thing to do about this game is to take any kind of expectations you are thinking about this game and throw them into the ocean because honestly, going into this thing, I had little to no expectation about this. It's just another silly game that got some buzz because it's going to make people laugh. There's a lot of these kind of games in Japan, so many of these kinds of games, and they're usually flash in the fish pan. But for this game, for some reason, I'm just kind of like, I really like this. It's not like a phenomenal game by any means, but it is just some good, silly fun. You're just like, how many times have you ever just like taken a look at a deck of cards and you're taking a look at cards around the table and you're just like, okay, how far can I stretch my thumb and my pinky so that I can keep the other three fingers available enough so that I can take the top card from the deck. I need to stretch, 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 stretch. Yes, yes, yes. I can totally see this card in between my index finger and my middle finger so that I can put this somewhere. And you're just like, it's a bunch of adults around a table using nothing but their fingers stretching out as far as possible. And then it just kind of, there are ways in which you can trick each other into getting their fingers off of a card. Like they might be spread out and then you put a card underneath their forearm. And so you're like, it's close enough. You should really try. I bet you, you can reach it. And they're so tempted. They're like, oh, maybe if I stretch this a little bit further and then their finger falls off of the card that they wanted all along and you're left being the only one on that card. So it's like little things like that or the little funny moments in which somebody tries to bluff everybody else at the table by putting one of the negative cards near them. And then everybody else at the table goes, nah, I don't think so. I don't believe you. I think that that's a negative card. And so nobody puts puts their fingers on it, and then they just kind of like shot themselves with a negative card. So it's these little moments that just kind of add up to a game that is much more than what I expected it to be. Is it going to be a game that you're going to keep in your collection for all time? I don't know. I think that this game is going to last a very long time in collections that are with kids, for sure. I think that this is a good one. I think that this is a good one for just a game at the end of the game night when you're ready to just have your brain turn off. Or this game only lasts about five minutes. So maybe when you're going to your game group and you're waiting on people to come, then you can bring this game out. It takes no time to set up. You tell everybody the rules and then you're off and going. And then five minutes later, you can take a little thing and be like, okay, do we have any more people here? Are we ready to start games yet? It's that kind of game. And because it's so small, you can take this anywhere. It doesn't take up much room either by the box size or on the table itself. 
and I don't know. I think that this is a game that is going to kind of scratch the same itch that for a lot of people the Eaten games are, where it is pretty much like a one-trick pony. It has a gimmick, and it's going to be based on if you like that gimmick or not, of if you like the game itself. But unlike Eaten, this game is relatively cheap. I think you can get it for something like $7 on Amazon Japan. So the investment to just try out and see if you like the gimmick is not much at all. I can see why it's picking up Steam in Japan as just kind of a quick little filler, a quick little game to add to one's collection. And I think that if you're at all interested in this and you're already putting together an Amazon Japan order, maybe this one is worth throwing into your package. And that is Last Penguin. It is designed by Kenta Murayama. The art is by Hamamura Masa, and it's published by Netiverse. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. Man, I feel like I'm so out of practice after taking a couple weeks off of this. I'm like, uh, did my sentences make sense? Am I just rambling? I really don't know. Just a reminder that if you want to talk to people about games, then you can join our Discord server that we have in the show description below. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and hit that subscribe. It really helps the algorithm get more people to look at our show. Well, that's going to do it for us today. Arigatou gozaimashita. Until next time, jane. Ja